This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Colorado Court of Appeals Judge Ted Tao has led a life of advocacy, guided by a keen intellect coupled with a disarming humanity. The Kansas native considered being a teacher before going to law school, entering private practice, and eventually serving several years as a deputy district attorney and then executive director of the Colorado District Attorney's Council before being appointed to the district court bench in the 17th Judicial District and ultimately the Colorado Court of Appeals in 2018. In this far-reaching interview with Linda Moss and Mallory Revel, Judge Tao talks about his experiences, how his judicial philosophy is tempered by an appreciation for diversity, and how seemingly little things like the use of pronouns can be an act of allyship. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today we have with us Judge Ted Tao, who's a Colorado Court of Appeals judge. I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Coombe Curry Rich and Jarvis. And I have with me Mallory Revel, who's a criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham Milstein and Kalisher. We're so happy to interview you today and let's jump right in. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so our first question for you is, how do you pronounce your name? <laughs> the last name is Tao. I always say looks like tow truck, sounds like cow. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so where does Tau come from? Tau is a Norwegian uh, village on the Stavanger Plain of Norway in the southeast. Uh, the name originated actually, apparently, from the genealogical research my family has done from the word Taufer, which means witchcraft. And <laughs> the belief is that particular region of Norway was the only area that uh, continuously operated through the plague. And so there were some concerns about why that was happening. Um, so the area got somehow affiliated with witchcraft, but it eventually got shortened to T-O-U in Norway and then T-O-W um, when people started coming over to this country. And my great-great-grandfather uh, and his twin brother came over just before the Civil War. Maybe we could use a little bit of witchcraft to get us through our plague. <laughs> so tell us about yourself. Um, tell us where you came from. Who were you? Uh, who am I? Um, I came for, I grew up in the Kansas City area um, for the most part. Um, Go Chiefs. I just have <laughs> I, to get yeah. that plug in. I, I married a Denver native or an Alamosa native. Uh, so I fired the Chiefs early in my <laughs> marriage um, for obvious reasons. So we could stop having a friend sit between us during football games to, <laughs> to be the uh, buffer. Um, but yeah, my all of my family, including my oldest son, are still very huge Chiefs fans. So mm. um, there's still a rivalry there. It's hard it's to not be a Chiefs fan right now. To be a Chiefs fan. Yeah, well, for the you know umpteen years that I was a Chiefs fan, they were the bottom of the barrel. So <laughs> you know, of course, it took me not being a fan anymore before them to get good. So no, I actually fired them long ago uh, <laughs> under the Schottenheimer era. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I am still a Royals fan. Um, we'll take it. And they, they, they won the World Series the year my oldest son was born in 1985 and then won again um, in, when he was 30. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we, we wait a long time for success in the Kansas City sports we world. We do. We do. 
So, but I uh, went around, uh, let's see, we went through Detroit for law school, Chicago for practice for a while, and then finally made it back here. Like I said, I, I married a, a Colorado native um, when we met at the University of uh, Kansas. And uh, the, the goal was always to get back here, but it took some time. Uh, the legal market at the various times we were getting out of our respective law schools uh, was not very conducive to to putting down roots in Colorado. So uh, I ended up practicing for almost five years in Chicago. Um, and then she was able to get her foot in the market first and, and I followed her out. Uh, I did labor and employment law. Uh, when I came out here, I went to Sherman and Howard and did the same thing. Um, and then after about a year and a half of that, to be honest, representing management in union relations um, in Chicago is a very different experience than it is here. Uh, in my experience here, it was far less constructive, far much, uh, much more of a battle, and that's not my view of how I wanted to be a lawyer. So I uh, jumped ship, um, took the massive pay cut uh, to go into being a DA, uh, went up to Adams County and prosecuted for about seven years, and went from there to the District Attorney's Council, um, which is kind of the trade association for the prosecutors in the state worked on legislative matters for criminal justice, uh, statewide training of police officers and DAs, uh, and that type of thing. And that was probably the biggest benefit for me for my judicial goals, because I had failed a few times to try to get on the bench. Um, but through that, I had met um, people that had gone through the system and understood the system a little better, um, particularly uh, Pete Weir, who had been a district court judge. And was when when I was working with him in that capacity, he was running the Department of Public Safety for Governor Ritter. Um, so I got some advice on how to go through the process and what to do. And uh, so the next time I tried again, I was more successful. And I went to the trial bench in 2010 and to the appellate bench in 2018. Wow. So let's back up a second. So what made you decide to go to law school? Um. My mother would have told you uh, that I always knew I wanted to be and uh, go to law school. She she always told people that at four, I told her I was going to be president. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I'm not the first lawyer in my family. My my father's father was a small town lawyer um, and dairy farmer in Iowa. Um, sure. But um, other than him, I think I'm the first lawyer. Um, but I always knew... I. I enjoy the law. I enjoy the, I'm a, at heart, I'm a nerd. I'm a complete and utter nerd. So I, uh, I knew that the, the puzzles that are fixing legal problems, um, puzzles are, are one of my hobbies and interests. So I enjoyed that. I enjoy debate. I enjoy arguing. I enjoy writing. Um, so it was either, uh, be a high school teacher, which was definitely kind of the family trade hmm. or, uh, or a lawyer. I started as an education major, uh, was told by the department of education at the college that I was at that, uh, I bucked the system too much and, um, <laughs> I needed to toe the line and I decided that I didn't want to be a part of that. So hmm. I went law instead. Interesting. And I'd love to, um, dig in a little bit more into your transition from employment law to um, criminal law. It sounds like you made a decision essentially based on your assessment of the morality of the position you were in. What was it like to make that kind of decision? 
it, it wasn't really the morality um, in, in the truest sense. I feel my, my goal as a lawyer is to solve problems. Um, I think that's what lawyers are supposed to do. Um, when a lawyer steps into the emotional shoes of their client, um, that's when the problems start because the lawyer no longer adds value. The lawyer then just becomes a surrogate for the irrational bickering that's already going on. Sure. Um, and if I can't remove myself from the emotions, I can still be a zealous advocate for my client, but not take on that emotional baggage and not take it personally and make it take it personal and make it personal. Um, and the market here in the union relations, the traditional labor, um, the unionized workforce was, was, and is very, very small. And the employers, frankly, didn't have a lot of incentive to be reasonable and to be constructive and to look to the future. Their hope was to just get rid of the unions. Um, and I, you know, I did most of my work for five years in Chicago and in throughout the, the mid and deep South for clients where, you know, the issue wasn't trying to get rid of the unions. It was trying to work with them and make everybody more productive and, and better employees, better employers. And so I needed, not as a moral thing, just as a personal satisfaction thing, I needed to feel good about what I did mm -hmm. and I couldn't anymore. So um, I always had a call to public service. I mean, I, you know, I thought about being a teacher, which I think is a public service job. Um, so I kind of re reassessed whether maybe prosecution was where I wanted to be. It was certainly one of the thoughts when I was in law school, but fortunately I did well in law school. So the law firms were offering jobs and with those jobs came far more money. So I followed the money, um, which was, you know, beneficial in the, in the long run because I was able to get rid of loans much quicker than a lot of people have been able to. Mm -hmm. But when the time came, um, I decided that I was going to answer the call uh, to public service, and I frankly never looked back. The transition and style of work, frankly, was not that different. I used to joke that I went from keeping people fired to putting them in jail, and that's not really a big difference. Um, and in one case, I kept a guy fired and then put him in jail. <laughs> um, so, the, But that was the, the gist of why or the, the, really the impetus for me to change careers, and, and I never looked back. I went straight into prosecution from law school. Unfortunately, the bigger firms were not calling me. <laughs> what was your favorite part, or put differently, what was the most fulfilling thing for you about being a district attorney? You know, I, I tell people, and I don't, I don't mean to cast dispersions on people who do other types of work, but for me, being a prosecutor is the best job you can have as a practicing lawyer for many reasons. One, you don't have a client. You have the people of the state of Colorado, which you are one of. Um, so other than your office, you know, your elected officials guidelines on how to handle cases, you are the lawyer who gets to say, this is how this case ends. Um, not necessarily with a conviction, but this case will go to trial. This case will not go to trial. No other lawyer has the ability, no other litigator has the ability to, to wake up today and say, this case dies today because they're, they have to have their client on board to settle. As a prosecutor, you don't. That control is liberating. It's also an awesome responsibility. You also have no, you don't ever have to bill. You don't ever have to collect. Um, all of the things that I have done in the private world. Um, and to be blunt, from an ethical standpoint, that is the only lawyer in that room, including the one in the black robe, 
whose job it is to do justice. And I was fortunate to be trained by an elected DA and an assistant DA who believed absolutely 100% in the prosecutor wears the white hat, always does the right thing. There were times when I worked harder to get someone out of jail than put them in um, because that was what that case needed and that individual needed. Um, and if, it, you know, if I'd been trained by someone other than Bob Grant and Steve Bernard, who knows if I would have enjoyed it so much, but uh, I credit them quite a bit. But that's the ability to do the right thing every time. Not that everyone always knows and gets <laughs> it right, but that's the goal. And, and for that reason, no other lawyer has that freedom. Did that motivation carry you into your role with the CDAC? Yeah, the CDAC was an opportunity that came um, that I wasn't expecting. Um, it, and it was an, an ability for me to teach, which is, again, uh, kind of an underpinning of who I am. Um, because they did statewide training um, for the DAs. They put on the CDAC conference at the time that the judges and PDs have their conference, that type of thing. But it was also an opportunity to work with the legislature to, um, to lobby and to help craft the criminal laws and the criminal procedural rules. Um, that's not through the legislature, obviously. That's through the court. But still, we, we worked on that as well. Um, and I really, um, though I was a little hesitant to leave the courtroom, um, it was an opportunity that I, that I was very eager to take uh, take up, and it was a very interesting, fulfilling uh, three years. So. so tell us a little bit about the process of becoming a member of the judiciary. It is, the, in many ways, um, very exposing. It makes you very vulnerable. Um, you really have to put yourself out there, and frankly, a lot of people who want to be judges tend to be introverts, and putting themselves out there is not their strong suit. Um, Was it difficult for you? It can be, yeah. I'm a little bit more social, even though I'm an introvert. There's, you know, the subscales. I tend to have a little bit more sociability, and everything else is introversion. But uh, it's still, I'm not naturally a, a salesperson. I'm not naturally a, um, one who's out there touting, um, you know, who I am and what I do. Um, so there's that, um, that being said, I'll take an opportunity to plug for our existing system because I started practicing in Illinois where people run for office for judgeships. Um, I think our system is, uh, unbelievably better than, than that. The, um, you know, the, the, all of the problems involved with electing judiciary as opposed to the merit selection system and retention system that we have are, um, they show up. Um, they show up on a regular basis in terms of the quality of, of justice that's done in the courtrooms. So I knew that I had to, you know, apply. Um, and I indicated earlier that I had learned about how the system really works. Um, it is not a political system with a capital P. It's not a partisan system. Um, in fact, I, I often joke that when I, this time around, when I started trying for the trial bench. I had previously failed. Um, I'd gotten shortlisted once, um, but didn't even get out of committee several other times. Um, when I decided to try again, I found out after I decided that the governor's lawyer was also going to be applying. Um, when I told my wife that, I won't repeat what she said, but um, <laughs> it was not encouraging <laughs> as to my chances. But, you know, to show that it's not a political spoils system, that individual didn't even get out of commission the first time. 
he did the next time and he got the position and he's he was was an excellent trial judge is also on the court of appeals with me and is an excellent court of appeals judge and frankly maybe one of the four or five smartest people i've ever known um so he absolutely has his position because he earned his position not because of who he worked for and that's what mean that's why our system works so well um but it's still political in, in the sense of any job is political with a lowercase p a lot of it is you know you're a stack of resumes how do you get yourself to the top and knowing people having people know you having people understand that you have the chops to do the job is a major part of it so when you're applying early in your career and you're not getting anywhere you know don't don't take it as a sign you need to stop take it as a sign you need to continue to build your reputation build your um your brand so to speak as a as an intelligent a uh, hardworking, ethical lawyer um, who will uh, be able to do that job when, when that window opens for you. Um, and that was part of the advice that I was able to get through the, the role that I was playing at CDAC. So that was, that was very helpful. But I, I, I do believe that this system really does work better than any other system for selecting judges that, that has been tried thus far. So how did you sell yourself? Again, I don't know that that I sold myself. I talked about myself. I talked about why I wanted to be a judge, that you know I have a, a fundamental nerd-based love of the law. Um, I'll talk uh, I'll talk about the nuances of of Miranda to people if they want to talk about it, and most people don't really want to talk about <laughs> it. Um, i I actually my my seventeen year old son, who's a, a college freshman right now, has really gotten interested and he is beating me to the punch. He's been reading the Supreme Court decisions before I get them read and he wants to, to grill me on them. So wow. I now finally have a someone around that I can that I can really get into it with. But <laughs> um but it's, you know, I I love I love who we are. I my major in college was comparative constitutional history. I love the development of our constitution, the development of our laws in a cohesive and coherent manner and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, and I think that whatever your passion is, whatever draws you to that type of service, if that's what you focus on, it's going to come through. Um, and, you know, it's also going to come through for the other candidates. So you may not be successful, but you'll be a genuine candidate. And that's all you can really try for. So aside from nerdiness, what unique quality do you think you bring to the bench that has made you a great judge? Well, I, I don't know that I would say I'm a great judge. Um, <laughs> I do my best. Um, you know, I, I, bring, um, I bring an understanding of the problems uh, and a personal experience with the problems of the common person. Um, I started out my adult life, uh, unfortunately, um, in a not very good, not very smart way. I, uh, I was an 18-year-old father and, and not a planned one. Um, I got married nine days before I graduated from high school the first time. So, um, you know, I've known what it's like to live that life. I've known what it's like to not necessarily know if you're going to make rent that month. Um, fortunately, I had family help that other people don't have. Um, so I also recognize that even though I have those experiences, I also have um, support systems that many people do not have. Uh, and I recognize what my life would have been without those. Um, so having that perspective, having the perspective from a professional standpoint of, uh, being, you know, both a civil litigator and a prosecutor, I know the language of both types of, 
of the of worlds. Um, the you know the focus for me is always that the law is you know we are a nation of laws and as a nation of laws the law has to the rule of law has to be paramount um, and we need judges who uh, will carefully consider the issues read the law not supplant the law with their own view of what what it should be um, but also pragmatically understand that. The legislature can't account for every single possible situation, so they intentionally write the laws with some room for the courts to interpret. Um, when I was lobbying, I heard more than one legislator say, yeah, we'll just let the judges figure it out. <laughs> so this kind of black and white view of a, a judge should never, quote unquote, legislate from the bench, just frankly, in some cases, cannot happen because the law is full of gaps that have to be filled for that case. Sure. Um, but to do so with a conscious um, focus on not overstepping our bounds and that we are the interpreters of the law, not the makers of the law is very important. Um, will you share a little more about the experience that you just talked about of being a young father, lacking stability early on in life? How did that experience shape who you were on the bench and how you treated pro se litigants, if at all? Well, I think obviously, um, when I started on the trial bench, as in many jurisdictions, I started in domestic relations, despite the fact that other than personal experience, I had no, no legal experience in that field. Um, but I understood the issues that they were facing, especially when I had those young parents and they were there a lot. Um, you know, to be able to say, look, you know, this isn't about me, but I understand um, maybe you're the one of the two parents that grew up faster and you're tired of waiting for mom or dad to catch up to you. Um, but understand, they will. It's just going to take some time. Um, or you're the one who isn't growing up very fast, and I, I'm going to lecture you a little bit. Um, but from, from the standpoint of my goal is to get you to a point where the tiny human stops suffering because you two can't get along. Um, that was always my goal was the, those, those kids, the tiny humans, as I called them all the time. Um, the most, I told almost everyone in front of me that the most important person in this case is the one I don't get to meet and I've met you too. So who am I talking about? Um, so there was a lot of that, just understanding the dynamic and the emotions of what can be going on there and the frustration and trying to get people to focus on the future and the next step, not why we're here, not, you know, he cheated on me or she took all my money or whatever it was. The more we're looking back, the less we can look forward and take the steps necessary to get the kiddos where they need to be. Um, so I was able, and I, you know, I, I got divorced relatively early. We, we made it about four years. So I've been through a rough divorce. I've been through a rough divorce as a kid because my parents were married and divorced from each other twice. So um, those are personal experiences that you can bring to bear without making it about you. Um, and that's an important line to obviously draw. Um, but also just generally the, the focus that again, the law is there to serve the people, not the other way around. Um, and to bring a common sense, real life, um, I've got to make these decisions and sometimes they're the decisions you don't want to hear. And sometimes they're the decisions you're really going to hate. Um, but let me at least give you the opportunity to be heard, to assure you that I have heard you, even though I can't rule the way you want. Um, and 
and that's really the goal for, for especially for the pro se's. Um, okay, so let's now talk about your experience on the Court of Appeals. What was the difference between the process of becoming a district court judge versus becoming a Court of Appeals judge? The process is very different in the sense that the nominating commissions for the district court and the county court are local. Um, now, you're probably not going to know everybody, um, especially if you live in a, you know, I live in the suburbs. It's, it's a big community. Um, but you have a decent chance of knowing somebody who knows somebody. Um, when it's a statewide appointment like the Court of Appeals of the Supreme Court, it's a statewide commission. And there's two people from each of the congressional districts on that. So there's somebody from Durango or Montezuma or Mesa County or wherever. And the chances of you knowing somebody who knows somebody is a lot more, dif- a lot more difficult to, to, you know, make those connections, find out about the people and what they think are, is important and that type of thing. So there's that element. Um, but other than that, in, in, in all honesty, the process is still the same. It's still, um, I used to have the Mel Brooks uh, scene from the movie go through my head every time I walked into that room for an interview. The Inquisition. What a show. <laughs> um, it's daunting. You walk in and there are potentially 16 people sitting around that table and you know you're going to get at least one question from every single one of them. Um, there is very little that is more... Um, more off-putting than that. Um, Can you remember the most challenging question you had? Um, I, my personality is such that, for example, when I was in law school, I never post-mortem the exam. I never walked out of the exam <laughs> and started talking to my call and my classmates of, oh, what'd you put on yeah. question two? And in fact, I was usually the kind of the jerk that would go, oh, you didn't write about the rule against perpetuities on that one? <laughs> Just to make them freak out because I had told them I didn't want to talk. So... I don't, I, I usually just put it out of my mind, which most candidates do not do. Most candidates come out, they immediately write down every question. They try to get other people's questions for the next time. And, and I just, I never did that um, just because it wasn't my personality. Uh, there were a few moments that I remember, I don't remember the details, but I remember coming out with the kind of the, what a, a colleague of mine used to call the stairwell moment where you're halfway down the stairs and you go, oh, that would have been a great answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were a few of those. Um, but you know, a lot of times the questions weren't even law-based. I remember one for the court of appeals, one of the commissioners asked me what I was reading. Um, and at the time I was reading a lot of teen dystopian lit cause my kids were, and I needed to know what they were reading. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, you know, divergent hunger games, like fun <laughs> stuff. So that's excellent. Wow. And fascinating. <laughs> And it worked clearly. That was yeah. a good answer. Right. Or, or, or it maybe was it was the, one yes. of the, the other interviews. Or it was a 14 to 1 vote. I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would forget when an interviewee said, oh, I'm reading the Hunker Games right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you made it onto the Court of Appeals. I did. And how is the experience of being on the Court of Appeals different as far as working with other judges and staff and, and the ways that cases were figured out and resolved? You know, the, the Court of Appeals is an amazing place to work. It's an amazing family. Um, we, we work together very well. We're very collegial. And that's one of our core values is collegiality. Um, but in, in, in other ways, my time on the trial bench was almost more collaborative um, because of the way we work. And uh, at the Court of Appeals, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a manual that kind of lays this out for people. That's, this isn't a, a shock or surprise. When the case is first assigned to a three-judge division, there's kind of a presumptive author assignment that's random. Um, so when I get that case, I know I'm at least in the initial stage going to be the author. 
Now, if at the end of the day, the other two disagree with how I think it come out, then I end up being a dissenter rather than the author. But, um, but we generally put pen to paper and kind of craft what we call the PDM, the pre-decision memorandum, um, before we ever converse with our colleagues on the case, before we bounce ideas off of each other about what these particular facts mean or what this particular law is or what the standard of review should be or any of that. Um, but when I was on the trial bench, if I had a summary judgment motion or something like that, I would be in Craig Welling's office or Jackie Brown's office or Tom Enzer's office or any of my colleagues and bouncing ideas and, you know, help, help me see a perspective that I'm missing. Cause I, you know, I bring my value. I bring my, my view of the mountain, so to speak, but I haven't been this type of practitioner. I haven't seen these types of issues. Help me make sure I'm not missing something. I'm not saying tell me how to decide it. I'm saying I want to see more. I want more perspective. We get all of that after the fact, after the PDM is written, and the PDM changes. Trust me, it's not set in stone and we, you know, here we, here's the first draft and we're done. We definitely work together on the ultimate product. But to some extent, the anchor at least has been set. So we're kind of, in more cases than not, here's the the scope of the conversation as opposed to a complete blank slate like it was when I started writing. So the collaboration element is, is it's there, but it's a little different um, in terms of the timing of it than when I was on the trial bench. And that one, that part kind of surprised me. It is a very monastic world. Um, you know, we're in our chambers and we've got our law clerks and um, we do intermingle, but in pre-COVID world, um, <laughs> but it's still a pretty siloed world. We're all, we're very busy. We've got a lot of cases. We do somewhere upwards of uh, over 80 opinions a year, each of us. Um, so we're, you know, there's not a lot of just hanging out, um, and talking. Um, but there is some of that so that we can get to know each other, understand each other and know who I might want to go to, to even off division, maybe to, to, talk about a particular perspective that I'm missing on a case, maybe talk to one of the, uh, one of my colleagues who was a, a defense attorney to make sure I understand what, you know, their perspective is what the strategy might have been in this particular issue. Again, not having them influence the decision so much as having them influence my thought process to make sure I don't miss something and create unintended consequences by how I decide a case. So, um, Previously, I've heard you explain this sort of issue as an issue of cultural competency. Have you experienced any barriers to um, learning more about different cultural elements of your cases as you've been on the bench? Um, I mean, barriers in the sense that, unfortunately, uh, as with all aspects of our judiciary, we lack some diversity, um, but not any, not any affirmative people not wanting to talk or not wanting to share um, or not wanting to help me understand, um, nothing like that at all. Obviously, uh, there there is definitely a need for a greater diversity on the bench. And I know Judge Jackson's uh, program is really aimed at, at working on that issue along with the CBA and CJI. Um, and I'm very excited for that, that program, particularly focusing on the pipeline, getting getting young people interested in law school, getting young lawyers interested in, in careers that might help them get to the bench so that we're not faced uh, with, oh, here's another vacancy, and yet we have a dearth of applicants um, of diverse backgrounds. Um, and also recognizing that diversity means a lot of different things, um, not just ethnicity or gender or 
uh, or gender expression or any, uh, any of those uh, kind of traditional ways of thinking about diversity, but frankly, diversity of background, diversity of education. You know, one of my great um, disappointments is, uh, at least as of a few weeks ago until Justice Ginsburg died, um, we, I, think, I think we figured out, uh, my son actually looked into this, the last Supreme Court justice that went to a law school other than a top 25 law school was Warren Berger, who went to Hamline in Minneapolis. Um, everybody else has been Ivy, Stanford, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, Northwestern, uh, Justice Stevens. So I think that's a problem. I think when the, that, a body of that import is entirely populated by people from the elite branch of academia, you, aren't, you do not have the perspectives that you need. You don't have people to go ask, how's the real world implication of this if you grew up in the ivory tower? Um, we don't have that lack. We have people of, of varying backgrounds on our court, um, and that is very important and very, very helpful. Um, so in that sense, uh, I'm very, very fortunate. Can you tell us a little bit about why practically it's so important to have diverse backgrounds on all benches, but specifically the Court of Appeals? I, it's, it's important because of that lack of perspective. We, we, even if we are self-aware enough to know what our blind spots are, we don't necessarily have the ability to fill them in unless we have someone else who can help us with that perspective. Um, you know, when, when uh, Judge Welling and I were put on the Court of Appeals and later Judge Brown, uh, but at the time Judge Welling got put on the Court of Appeals, only Judge Karen Ashby was a trial court judge before an appellate judge. I am in no way suggesting that to be a good appellate judge, you have to have trial court experience. But to be a good appellate court, you have to have a handful of people who have been. Um, and, and, and it ebbs and flows. At the time I joined, I, again, was uh, only the third, counting Judge Ashby and Judge Welling, um, out of 22. But about half of the judges that we had in our senior judge corps, the retired judges who were still helping out, um, were judges who had been trial judges before they went to the Court of Appeals or, um, in Justice Martinez's case, to the Supreme Court. So it definitely ebbs and flows, but, but that's one example um, that you, just to have the understanding when you, so that you can have somebody to talk to about what's the, as I'm writing this remand instruction, is this something that's going to be understood? Is this something that can be applied by a trial court judge or am I going to confuse them? Um, you know, if it's more the, the cultural background and the cultural competencies, being able to talk to somebody who has some of those that you may not have um, will help avoid the unintended consequences of, of what you're writing and how you're deciding the case. It's, it's critically important for the quality of the ultimate decision, but it's also critically important that when, for example, on the trial level, when a defendant walks into that courtroom, if the judge or the prosecutor also happens to be um, uh, a person of a diverse background, whether it's a person of color, a woman, um, gay, whatever it might be, and that is something that connects to that defendant, that's important because the defendant then feels like maybe maybe the system's not ganged up against him or her or them. Um, you know, th little things like, um, even, th even things like pronouns, um, as we, you know, we, we are authors and we are writers and we are usually language nerds. 
And I will freely admit that for some people, they are going to be have, have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the world where they is a singular pronoun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not anything against uh, people, you know, non, non-binary individuals. It's just this, the, the language that's, oh my gosh, I have to protect the English language. Um, but it, there is a willingness, there is growth to be had there. Um, I, I will, I proudly say, I, I believe I was the first of my 22 colleagues to put my pronouns in my signature block, um, because it's important that people for whom that is not a significant issue, make it normal so that it can be normal for everyone, even those for whom it is a significant issue. Um, and that, that they don't feel like they're having to put themselves out by, you know, being the, the trailblazer on the pronoun issue, for example, and being kind of making themselves a target. Um, so those are, those are important factors. And if we don't understand, and if we don't have someone on the court or in the system that does understand that can help give us that perspective, um, then we have that, that barrier for them more than, more than for me. And that's a great point. Back yeah. in my prosecution days, I literally have seen pro se defendants walk into a Denver courtroom, look around, see the diversity of the people that were about to handle their case and just stop and say, wow, I never thought the judge was going to look like me. And that is incredibly meaningful. That's obviously something that you're passionate about. Can you share with us any work that you do in the bar or the judiciary or anything else um, to help kind of cultivate diversity in both the bar and the judiciary. Yeah, we I mean, I, I'm a one one of the various people in CBA leadership. I've been on the board of governors, I've been on the executive council for a, a few terms, that type of thing. Um, we definitely I was fortunate enough to be on the executive council when Judge Jackson came to the bar with the C, uh, the uh, the diversity project. Um, and I was immediately a vocal supporter, not that there were any frankly opposition <laughs> in that group. Um, in my hiring practices, it's actually kind of interesting. You know, we have the um, the Lorenzo Marquez Diversity Internship Program at the Court of Appeals, um, where we actively seek out law students to come in and be interns, um, law students with diverse backgrounds to come in and be interns to help build that pipeline. And we've been doing that since Judge Marquez was still on the bench in a non-retired fashion, mm-hmm. and he just retired from the senior crew recently. Um, and and that is an incredibly valuable um, valuable resource to build that pipeline to give people uh, with diverse backgrounds that exposure and that ability to um, to kind of look at, at a career path that they may not have actually felt that they had an opportunity to pursue. Um, and you know, it's new enough that I don't know that we've had people uh, around long enough to say this is where I got my start and now I'm on the bench. Maybe, I don't know, um, but it's certainly uh, a project that is not going away and has now been actually enmeshed in the Court of Appeals five-year plan that we just adopted, um, and, it, and it is an, a central core of our court's step to getting that done. Um, and hiring law clerks, uh, you know, it's not like I can look at a resume and go, oh, that's a black person, I want to interview them. <laughs> so there is difficulty. I, you know, I, I pick my interviews based on paper, um, and unfortunately sometimes... I don't get the diverse candidates, but I certainly um, look to interview as many as I can and, and hope to hire as many as I can um, to give, again, that pipeline, that that opportunity to, to get their foot in the door. Um, whether it's, again, person of color, or gay, um, non-binary women, whatever it is that isn't, 
you know, 50 something white male, (laughs) 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 which, you know, guilty as charged. So, (laughs) Sure. Is there anything else you think that the judiciary could be doing differently to foster, you know, more applicants of color? You know, I, everyone in the, in positions of power is aware of it. Um, Everyone in positions of power, I believe, uh, supports the goals. Um, The reality is, to some extent, particularly um, in in certain categories of diversity, you know, there's a difference between a, a representative slice of the community and a representative slice of the bar. Um, part of the pipeline problem is uh, we don't, frankly, have the same percentage of, say, blacks or Hispanics from the community that are members of the bar. Those percentages are actually lower, um, which creates that pipeline, or it either creates or is, a, is the effect of the pipeline problem. Um, so we need to start there. We need to get um, more diverse people into law school. We need to be reaching to the diverse kids even before law school. Before college, we need to be going into the high schools. And the judiciary has, has identified that issue. The Bar Association has identified that issue. And we have programs being developed and already in place that, that are targeting that, that message. And that's, uh, that's very, very important. Yeah, I understand that's something that the Colorado Judicial Institute does, right? Mm-hmm. They go into schools and teach kids about at least Colorado's judiciary and the process of right. And, and the CBA has the Our Courts program that they've now created a high school version of as well. So, Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So um, what's next for you aside from endlessly debating uh, Supreme Court cases with your son? Uh, I, you know, I, I have my position. I'm, I'm thrilled to be where I am. Um, I enjoy being able to, uh, to work, as I said, on the cohesive, coherent development of the law. Um, I continue to seek leadership opportunities within the Bar Association to help the practice of law. Uh, I'm recently, uh, I've recently been added to the CBA Ethics Committee, uh, and having served on the Judicial Discipline Commission when I was a trial judge, uh, I think this is a great opportunity to, to provide additional opportunities for, for leadership and for a say in how, how things develop. So I will just keep looking for ways to, to teach, um, to keep looking for ways to to serve my community um, and give a plug to the law club. I'll keep looking for opportunities for the law club to perform and, and teach ethics through musical parody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just more of the same. Awesome. And do you have any advice for young law students or, or fresh new lawyers coming into the Colorado legal field? Be prepared, be on time, and be professional, which means civil um, ethical. This isn't about uh, showmanship. It's not like TV lawyers. Um, you, you do your job best when you serve ethically and civilly, and you work with the other lawyer in adversarial ways if it's a trial, in negotiative ways if it's not. Uh, but in any event, you're working toward the best resolution rather than just making it about winning or about losing or about the gamesmanship. That's not the law. Perfect. Thank you so much for meeting with us today. This has truly been a pleasure for us. Yes. Thank you so much, Judge Tao. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest, 
or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Fulker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.